This is the Mediate Now with Winter Wheeler. Your clear choice for expert mediation and negotiation advice. But it's so much more than that. Take our advice. You will improve your entire life. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening today. My guest is Talar Herculean Corsi. Did I say your name right? You did. I'm very impressed. Miss it. Okay. You know, it's weird, you know, when you've only read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You said it great out loud on the first try, no less. I mean, I think your day is over. You succeeded. <laughs> Big. <laughs> Done. <laughs> We're ending it now. I can't get better. <laughs> so Talara's current role is as general counsel for Vista Ford Lincoln dealerships in Southern California. Now, She's in Salt Lake City, so talk about a great work-from-home setup. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I I was working from home before work-from-home was popular, so I'm the trendsetter. Gotcha. Look at you. Super fancy. I, I knew you were super fancy. So <laughs> prior to that, Talar was a dedicated labor and employment defense attorney at Fisher & Phillips out in my neck of the woods, Atlanta, Georgia. So, you know, Talar, all I can think is that I wish I had known you Back then, how fun would that have been? <laughs> I, I, I just can't even imagine. I, I, I can't imagine how different my life would be had I known you back then. <laughs> I mean, I, I bring light to the world, so, you know. <laughs> you, you do, definitely. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, when I was in my 20s, I, I'd be up out hitting clubs until two or three in the morning and then getting up for work at eight and oh yeah I, I go to bed at 8 30 now <laughs> life is a little different just a little bit like the craziest story I have like that this is a complete aside um I was living in um western Florida at the time which is between Miami and Fort Lauderdale and my favorite band, Cowboy Mouth, was playing in St. Petersburg. So me and my best friend, we hopped in the car after work, drove all the way to St. Petersburg, partied all night, drove right back home, <laughs> right to work. <laughs> Not a problem. Definitely, definitely can't do that these days. But No, no, I can't. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of memory lane. Enough of memory lane. But anyway, you know, the universe gets us where we need to be, um, when we need to be there. So, and of course, Talar, you are my networked book co-star. I wouldn't call you a co-star, not a co-star. Let's, let's do it. You know what? They should make a movie about it. Could you I imagine? So. Who, yeah, would play, who would play, who would play you? you? Um, ooh. That's a tough one. Um, I'm going to think about that. It's going to come to me and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you as we go through. How about you? What do you think? I don't have a go-to, but the first thing that comes to mind, because this is the only celebrity I've ever been compared to, and I really don't understand why, is Deborah Messing. Do you know who that is? I do. I think she's adorable. I, I, I can see it. I can totally see it. She's on Willing Grace. She's like the size of my leg as far as appearances go. But I do very much relate to her personality. Yeah. So I think that's who would be me. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. You, you know what? And now that I think about it, I, I, I would love to see Gabrielle Union play me. 
Ooh, ooh, that would be nice. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You know what? Say it with me. Manifest okay. this. All Declare right. to the universe. Hashtag networked. Hashtag coming networked, out. Coming out. Coming out soon. Soon. To a theater near you. Yes, to a theater near you. Without COVID. Without COVID. <laughs> yes. All right. It is done. Yep, it's happening. So, Delara, thank you so much for being here. You graciously agreed to come on my crazy show and talk about your experiences as an employment lawyer. And so we chatted about this a little bit in advance, and we want to talk about strong personalities, strong feelings, and what's happening in the room Um when you've got a client who's been accused of something that basically maligns their their character <laughs> an entire you know their entire being right so i never i never practiced employment law myself but i have i have mediated some some employment related cases so i don't know what it's like to be in the room as the defense attorney and i would love some insight on that what's it like <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, it can be really tense. It's, um, I remember one of my mentors and former partners telling me when he was giving me a heads up about mediation, everybody's playing everybody. You Ooh. know, I, I mean, that, <laughs> that may sound, you know, so, um, I don't know, negative or whatever, but it, it, it's, like, you know, one of these soap opera drama movies you're looking at, kind of like a whodunit and who's on whose team and what do I need to get to enlist this person's help to uh, convince this person? Because, you know, a, a lot of my cases were insured, the um, EPLI insurance. And so I would have the client, the insured, and then I would also have the carrier. Yeah. And so I was often in a menage a trois of <laughs> legal relations, not as fun as the uh, more commonly used version of that. I'm All sure. All right, and let's keep it PG. <laughs> oh, was that inappropriate? Should no, I'm joking. That? I'm messing okay. with you. <laughs> I don't know what it literally means. It's the three of us, isn't it? When I'm managing three, isn't that what that means? Manage three, menage a trois. Okay, we'll go with that. Okay, I'll look it up. I'll get back to you. So anyway, because I didn't want to be inappropriate, but so so it's it's so even you know when you're in the defense table caucus, you are already um, trying to read the room, the characters, and you know what do I need? What what does this person need in order to trust me? Trust the mediator to get to resolution. Um, and obviously, the carrier's needs are very different than my insured client's needs. And like you said, it's it's so difficult when you're dealing with personal attacks. I mean, it's one thing if you breached a contract, you didn't send me enough widgets, or you know, you used the wrong paint for the house, or it's a slip and fall, and you should have cleaned up that you know mess sooner. Um, I mean, in, in the cases that I'm defending, oftentimes they were accusing my client of, uh, you know, some form of discrimination 
you know, and they would take it very personally because they would often feel like if I settle this case, I'm admitting that I'm a sexist or I'm a racist or I don't like Jews or whatever, you know? And, and so a lot of the work, honestly, for, for mediation, for me happened before getting to mediation. I had to work on the client and kind of like prepare them, you know, for the molding that was going to take place. And some of my favorite mediators they took the time to earn my client's trust instead of just coming in there and saying, you did some really bad things or you're being accused of some really bad things. You're going to pay out big. So you should pay out now. I had some mediators who did do that. That did not work out very well. Like quite literally said those things. Oh God. Right. Yeah. Oh, this Uh. is just, you know, this is just cost of defense. It's just a few thousand. And, you know, they, they were talking money when my client really needed to talk emotions and empathy and, right. and, and morals and values. Um, so, you know, my, the experiences that I had with some phenomenal mediators, they did take the time for that. It, it seemed like more often than not, the mediators I worked with they knew well enough that they had to earn the plaintiff's trust. Well, I was defense side. I was always representing the defendant. Um, But it wasn't always the case that the mediator would take the time to earn the trust of my client. And in those situations where they did make that effort and that time, the case would resolve. Yes. I love that you said that because I have conversations like that with with other mediators and and with lawyers, too, uh, that, you know, the defendant is never as invested as the plaintiff is. And that is so, so wrong. It's so far from the truth. The defendant is often very invested, you know, no matter what kind of case it is. Right. So even if it's like a slip and fall and, and you're the grocery store if you've done something wrong and someone got hurt, or even if you didn't necessarily do something wrong and someone got hurt, you feel bad about that. You know, everyone has emotions. (laughs) Everyone has feelings. So people do have feelings attached to all of these things. And so when, you know, in this situation, when we're talking about accusations against someone's character, it's always about so much more than money, like you said, for the individual who's actually being accused of these things. And I would imagine that it has to be the most uncomfortable feeling to walk into a mediation or log in in Zoom, knowing that everyone there has knowledge of these things that you've been accused of, right? And so every you're feeling like everyone is looking at you in a certain way. Maybe they, they're feeling like everyone believes those accusations and they're feeling like they need to defend themselves to everyone in the room. Did, did, you, did you ever find that to be true with, with your clients? Yes, absolutely. And the message didn't end in the mediation room, especially in accusations of sexual harassment. I'm trying to think. I, it was always a, a man that was being accused. I've never had to defend a woman, although women do it too. There were often times where it was, you know, what's my wife going to think? And what am I going to explain to my wife, to my kids, my community, um, my reputation, all, all these other 
factors at play. So it wasn't just about what do the people in this mediation room think of me, but outside of the mediation room and what are those consequences going to be? And, you know, of course, like I said, it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of prep, both on my part and the mediators to get the defendant on board with understanding resolution does not equal guilt, right? That there are two different things. You can't ignore those emotional aspects. I think that in my experience, both parties need validation. And in fact, what I would often do, and I made a practice of doing this, is we normally would not have a joint session in in my mediation cases. And I didn't think those were useful (laughs) personally. In the context yeah. <laughs> of, of, of our cases, I didn't feel like that was a good idea on, in terms of how to start it. So usually they would, we would start in our separate rooms, but I would make a point of personally, uh, without my client, going over and introducing myself to the plaintiff. I wanted the plaintiff to see me as a human being mm-hmm. and for them to see me seeing them as a human being, because I, I feel like there's so much more we can achieve when we remember to humanize people uh, because otherwise it would be too easy to lump me in and demonize me along with my client. And I'm not saying that demonizing my client is the right thing to do either, but as an advocate for my client, I felt like it was important for me to um, humanize myself. And, you know, in, in, in some occasions we would even have, you know, the defendant, my client, in some circumstances, going over and being able to have a conversation or sometimes what the plaintiff wanted was an apology. And those can be really hard, especially if the defendant is denying that it ever happened. But, you know, there there's ways to get around it. I just, you know, more and more realized in, in my practice that everybody has their own perception of reality. Yes. That. That is their truth. That is their reality. Um, And being able to put aside your own ego to respect and validate their reality uh, can be a really hard thing to do, but also very rewarding, you know, in reaching a resolution. Absolutely. And, you know, I love that you said that because it reminds me of a Brene Brown quote, and I know you love her. I do. And she said, in order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you imagine their experience to be. And so I think that that really can be a bridge in these types of situations where we may all see these things differently, but we need to come together and at least try to see where that where the other person is, meet them there, at least for purposes of the mediation. Now, I'm not, I'm certainly not suggesting that someone who has been discriminated against try to get into the head of the, of the defendant, but at least try to understand that the defendant is being impacted. There is always a certain amount of emotion there. And another thing I'll, I'll, I'll just throw out this personal anecdote I had my own sexual harassment experience as a very, very young lawyer. I may have been 25, 26. And I I didn't report it myself. Someone witnessed it and she reported it. 
And then the next thing I know, I'm, and I don't know why that made me laugh, but it was just, I guess because it was so absurd now in hindsight, I was then taken into a meeting and had to confront this man who had been harassing me on a daily basis. And he was, you know, he's my direct report, right? And so, so it was, it was, it was not fun. And he, he admitted that he had done it though. And he wanted to apologize, but then he kind of went into this whole, I feel terrible about how people are looking at me (laughs) and I've had to apologize to my wife and and even asked me if I would talk to his wife on his behalf. So it was very strange. But I bring that up because it is just, it's just indicative of how much baggage the defendant can bring into this type of mediation, you know, depending on how those things went. Now, Luckily, in my situation, I was, you know, I didn't really want to deal with it. Nothing too terrible I had happened. And, you know, I mean, we've gone through the whole Me Too movement at this point. So maybe in hindsight, it's a little bit different. But regardless, I can imagine a defendant showing up with their lawyer with all of that and having lived with that for however long it took them to get to mediation. So... I'm you t- tell me what that feels like though when you when you walk in as the attorney and of course you know you you've you've started working with this person in advance on what's going on and all of that but mediation day is a different animal it feels different it's a more stressful situation because it's go time right what does that feel like for you what's the experience uh for you as the lawyer and how do you start that that conversation on the day with your client? Like I mentioned earlier, I would not be doing my job if I was talking to them for the first time about mediation on the morning of. Absolutely. So I've already, you know, I've already get, had a lot of pep talks with them. I've shared information. And on the day of, it's, you know, it's going to be a long day. We're going to get to know each other really well. We're going to spend a lot of time together. Where would you like to go to lunch? I seriously like, uh, it's, it's, I'm so jealous of our co-author, co-star Shari Bellitz. Yes. And her work in psychology, because seriously, so much of what I was doing and especially at mediation, I felt like was therapy. Um, because my goal at that time was like I said, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with different players and characters and trying to meet all their different needs. And for my client on that day, it's, I need to get them in the right mindset. I need to make them feel as comfortable as possible to put down their guard, hopefully overcome ego, uh, overcome these other issues and obstacles that we're having. And so, you know, I, I'm thinking back, I, I have no idea how many mediations I've done. Lots of them. I mean, uh, uh, let's put this into context. I, you know, I've been, I've been in-house now for almost 10 years. Next month will be 10 years. So I was in private practice for 10 years, over 10 years. Congratulations. I had no idea it was that long, Talar. 
Yeah, you calling me old. No, I'm not calling saying? you old. No, I heard, I, you, you know what 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 I, <laughs> what I think I'm saying is that you are so gorgeous and you look so good I never would have imagined. You're good. I like <laughs> you. Uh, just honest, just honest. You're really good. Yeah, it's been 21 years since I graduated. So I have never gone to trial as a lawyer. I've been to several of them before I became a lawyer, which is at the same law firm. I later, you know, became a lawyer and partner Fisher and Phillips. Again, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, And, uh, you know, I, so it was my first year, it was at a different law firm. I was second chair in a sexual harassment binding arbitration. And that was it. The rest of my cases resolved through some sort of either mediation or, or settlement. That, that's what happened. I mean, this is California. There were some, you know, summary judgment motions where I was successful, but those are few and far between just because the case law and, and the burdens in California are so difficult. And, right. you know, the, the plaintiff's bar there, they know it. They know what they're doing. And, <laughs> and so that, that's how it goes. But there is something that I, I wanted to say, even though you didn't ask the question, I'm going to answer the it. unasked question <laughs> or the question that I want to answer. Talara, why did you become a lawyer? Why did you become an employment lawyer? And the okay. reason the reason I wanted to ask and answer that question myself is first, <laughs> I want to say I'm sorry for the experience that you went through no. having having to experience that. I certainly have had my own experiences. Um, and uh, that is the reason why I became a defense lawyer. I was a naive young college student. Mm-hmm. I was 18 when I started my legal career at Fisher and Phillips as the slowest file clerk ever because <laughs> I, I, I read everything I filed, but I was, my quality of work was excellent. <laughs> And, you know, I was still at that phase in my life where I wanted to make the world a better place. Um, I, I grew up in the Middle East where discrimination was not only not unlawful, it was the law. My, my parents' ID cards in Saudi Arabia had their religion and their national origin. They were paid differently, yeah. couldn't own land, like, you know. And, and so I, I did, I really did go into it thinking, um, I'm going to make a difference by helping the victim before there could be a victim. I was going to be the advisor to the employer to help them understand and do things right so that it would mitigate any potential for harm. And you know what really upset me is that, at least in the cases that I saw, I'm not saying, you know, I don't have statistics, I don't have stuff like that. But, you know, when I, in the work that I saw at the firm and, and in my ability to get to know my clients, more often than not, they really were trying to do the right thing. Or if there was somebody doing something wrong, you know, maybe management didn't know about it and there were processes that could be fixed. But there's so many instances of harassment. I mean, even your own story you're talking about, women who are actually experiencing it, they are afraid to speak up because of the stigma, because Absolutely. of what's happened to the landscape. And I mean, I'm not saying that filing a lawsuit is the right way to go, right? But I, I, that is a part of my agenda and my mission is the workplace should be a safe environment 
regardless of your gender, regardless of your religion or your race. And I feel like the more companies that invest in being able to understand these things, um, the more we can make a difference. Because I think it's horrible that even in this day and age, women could be treated that way. It's really horrible. And you and I yeah. see it all the time, right? On LinkedIn. All the time. Oh yeah. my gosh. The all messages the time. we get. Yeah. The, the message. Listen, I got, <laughs> oh, I didn't get one as good as the one that you got this morning. Um, but yeah, the messages that we get on LinkedIn are just insane. Like we are clearly there to network, meet people, um, socialize because it is COVID. Not, we're not there to invite any type of sexual <laughs> innuendo in our inboxes. And um, it's just crazy. And in these, the, the men, and I'm going to say men because it's only happened to me with men, but the men who do these things, you know, they're, they're doing it with their, their real names and their real email addresses. And I know where you work and it's easy to find you. Um, and so one guy, I just, I, I said, that's completely inappropriate. Do not ever, uh, contact me again. I've already screenshot this, try it again. And, um, I'm going to publicly out you. So (laughs) he went away, thank God. But yeah, it's, it's constant. And, and going back when I was, when I had that specific experience at a law firm, when I was very, very young, I was not in a position where I could afford to lose my job. I was so, so young, so broke, had not a clue about what was going on. I didn't really know how to litigate. I mean, it was my first year as a lawyer. I was concerned about, you know, if I did leave, would I be able to find a job quickly? I mean, I just had all of these things that I had to worry about. And unfortunately, it was like, almost the least of the problems was what he was doing because all of the consequences that were going to happen were going to happen to me. And I knew that he was a, I mean, a senior partner on the verge of retirement, huge, huge, huge book of business. I knew nothing was going to happen to him. So I was just going to try to be quiet, keep my head down and, and see, see if I could get through it. Right. Thankfully, I say thankfully in hindsight, because I was not happy when it happened at the time. But, you know, my my much older female friend stuck up for me. She reported it. And I was I was immediately moved to a different a different area of the firm, a different practice group, which was great. So I, I made it through that. But I shouldn't have had to. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we've gotten a little bit far afield of what we were talking about before, but but it, we shouldn't have to have those conversations with ourselves. And the fact that it continues every single day is just, it's so disheartening and it is so painful. And it just makes me, it makes me sad for my kids that we're still dealing with these things. And so 
I love what you said, you know, the the question I didn't ask that you answered. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love that that was your motivation. Your motivation was try to get in on the other side and make sure these things aren't happening and develop best practices. And I, and that's huge. And I love that um, because as defense attorneys, in whatever capacity, people who aren't familiar with how the justice system should work and how everyone is entitled to a defense, they think of us as, you know, how could you defend this person? Well, it's not just defending this person. This person is entitled to a defense, but there are also lots of other things going on. We have the ability to change, to make case law, change change laws to implement better practices wherever we go and to, to really help people. And I would imagine, Talar, that in your career, you've come across people who were doing some crazy things who didn't necessarily understand that they were inappropriate or wrong. There's still a few of those. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're everywhere, right? Yes, they are. They are. Yeah. And that requires a lot of patience a lot of patience to be able to remain persistent and hopeful that you can pull them out of their reality right. into another reality where they could actually see that it might be inappropriate. Because it's, you know, we're, I'm not saying that it's an excuse, but, but I, I understand it to a certain extent. We are somewhat of a product of our experiences and our upbringing. And if they just have never had to encounter some different perspective where, where their behavior is not okay, you know, something like in, in the workplace, a uh, man calling you, sweetie, hey, sweetie, how are you doing today? Hey, sweetie. Oh, drives me nuts. <laughs> it seems harmless. And, and I, I've seen this, especially um, not to stereotype, but with older gentlemen that my point being, they, it, I believe, I want to believe it comes from a place of kindness and chivalry. It's not coming from a place of, I'm going to put you down because you're of the female gender. But I've had to have conversations with people like that to help them explain how, how that can come across. One, how it can make me feel, right. you know, less than professional, as well as how is it going to um, make other women feel around me or other men around me. You're giving them permission to treat me that way, even though you might not have any malicious intent. So there's, and, you know, training was a lot of the work that I did. And, and part of the most enjoyable aspect of my work, training managers to help them understand, show them the different ways it can manifest and, you know, explain to them like, and look them in the eye as a woman and say, when I'm meeting you and you're staring at my breasts or their elevator eyes checking me out, that makes me feel very little and small. It's very demeaning. So even though there's not a word uttered from you that's disrespectful, that behavior alone can have such an impact. And I would like to think that my training, my messages maybe it reached a few of those people and, and they get it now and it's not harmless. So that part of it was, that part of my work was rewarding. And now, you know, getting to be in house, that's most of what I get to do is 
the advice and counsel part of my work. I don't litigate anymore. And the reason I don't is because I went to a therapist back in (laughs) 2006 and she says, don't you fight for a living? I said, oh yeah, I guess so. I I litigate. And she goes, well, you don't strike me as a confrontational person. (laughs) I said, I'm not. And it was at that point I realized, I think I need to find another job where I don't litigate. (laughs) Oh oh my God, that is... (laughs) I love that. And and listen, the plug for therapy is, is, is important <laughs> as well. But Talar, so I would love if you could give like your favorite best, I don't know what, <laughs> what word to use because I'm going to add, I want to hear something that was completely crazy. Like the worst behaved defendant that you had, like so emotionally charged, hyped up, angry that they were there, um, completely in denial about ever having done anything wrong. What do you, what do, you do with that? Call in for reinforcements. <laughs> That's where I step in. I'm not <laughs> even kidding. Well, no, more than you. I actually have a particular memory. And, um, you know, thankfully, I, I, I'm going to give a plug for my mentor and former partner, Jim McDonald, who... I mean, he hired me when I was 18 and then I got to hire him as, you know, his client now. I love that. That was fun. Yeah. I remember this particular situation and I told him what was going on because the client wasn't taking me seriously. And I felt like it was uh, a gender issue. I still believed in the company. That's who I represent, not the individual, but the individual was a part of this. And I had to have a conversation with him saying, I I don't think I can represent this company the way that they need representation because of this relationship. And he was great about it. And he said, thanks for letting me know. I'm going to take it over for you. And that's what I needed. It wasn't going to (laughs) work. I couldn't get, of course, ironically, that was part of the allegations. Go figure. Shocking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, that would happen. I, I had client once. I can picture him right now sitting in my office uh, saying, do you have the balls to take this case? And I said, no, I don't. If that's what you need for this case, I'd like to introduce you to one of my partners down the hall. (laughs) I I can't vouch that they have the equipment you're requesting. Oh God. But I think they might. Was that inappropriate too? Have I gone too far? No, that no, listen, I was just messing with you. Um, <laughs> but I love that response, you know, and it makes so much sense. If someone really doesn't know that they've done something wrong, genuinely believes they haven't done something wrong, it's because, like you said earlier, you're the sum total of everything you've learned, everything that you've been through, right? And so if that's just part of, what life has been like, it has got to be extremely hard to hear as a grown adult that maybe you shouldn't be ogling women. Maybe don't try to look up their skirt while you're sitting in a meeting. That actually happened to me. That was unfortunate. I know you you say you're not a confrontational person, but that comment seems confrontational to me. I don't know. (laughs) I call it confident. Confident. Okay. Yeah. Let's call it confident. Because because I wasn't going to argue with him. I wasn't what he wanted. And I mean, thankfully, 
it was uh, later on in my career where I, I was very successful. I had a great book of business. I wasn't worried about not having the work or the client. And, and so I had developed the confidence to be able to turn them away. And actually, one of my greatest memories and practices when I fired a client, that felt so good. And you know why? I, I was standing up for my associates. We were defending a class action and my associates kept complaining about how this client was treating them. And it meant a lot of money, a lot of work, but it wasn't worth it to me. You know, even though the client, they weren't treating me that way. It was very different, but they were being very uh, abusive, for lack of a better word, of my associates. And that's not okay. No, definitely not. I'm happy that you did that. I'm not surprised because I know you that you did that, but I love it. Do you ever feel like you had a client, I don't know, have like have that come to Jesus moment where they realize, oh, wow, I have been doing something inappropriate. I feel really badly about it. Help me do better going forward, Talar. Please help me, Talar. Yes. Help me help you. <laughs> yes, help me help you. I, you know, I don't have a recollection necessarily of a specific occurrence and and hopefully it's not just wishful thinking but getting my message across in in these conversations and trainings where where particularly I'm trying to explain the effect of discrimination and harassment against women in the workplace I felt like I did see light bulbs and in the follow-up questions the nodding of the heads and just their uh, receptiveness to the message. I, I felt like there were people that I got across to because I was able to explain it in a way that wasn't accusing them of being a bad person, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody wants to hear that, but instead explain the point of view of the, the victim and the effect that it has. And then understanding and being able to tie those things together to come to that realization. I felt like I had a lot of those types of moments. I think I would agree with you from my perspective too. When I see these types of things in mediations where someone has done something wrong, they they don't necessarily know <laughs> as we're going into it that it is wrong, but they're open to hearing what the other side is saying and why they feel the way that they do about the behavior and simply working through it with them and reframing all of that information and helping people come to, you know, meeting people where they're at, you know, figuring out how to reach that specific person and letting them know, yeah, I understand you didn't mean anything by that. And this is just how it's been for you. But this is why that is not okay for this person. And you shouldn't be doing that going forward. And so I, I definitely see the light bulb moments. I've never had I've never had anyone say, oh my God, my whole life has been a lie or, or anything yeah. crazy like that. Now, if that ever happens, that, that would that would be really cool. But just getting people to realize that there is another perspective. And, you know, a lot of it is the difference between what your intention is and what the effect is. Because it's not your intention that really matters to the person who has had this inflicted upon them, 
They don't really care what you meant. They care about how they feel. They care about how they've been affected. And so when we can split those two things up and we can explain that, I think we um, have a much easier time coming together. We're much more likely to see some type of improvement or closure for the alleged offending person. You know what I mean? Do you agree with that? I do, definitely. And as you were saying that, it reminds me, I don't know who I heard it from. I I can't take credit for it, but... It was me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Winter. But whether it was through litigation, mediation, settlement, whatever the case was, I'd always tell my client that, you know, this is education that you're getting. Sometimes it's more expensive than other times. That's the tuition that you're paying for it. So even with lawsuits and they're, they're not pleasant, that is the value that I would try to get out for them is taking it as a learning experience. You might be learning something new about your company and the people who are working for you, or you might be learning something new about yourself. And, you know, if, if it took a complaint for you to get that lesson, then that's what it took. And that's your tuition. Right. You know, sometimes there were definitely cases where I didn't think my client deserved to be sued. And, and I didn't think it was right. But whatever the case, e- even in those circumstances, there's always something that you can learn. Oh, definitely. We can always improve right? We can always learn from other people. We can learn from others' sensitivities and try to eliminate any confusion going forward. I I definitely think that that's the case. Yeah. I think that uh, when you're done learning, you're dead, basically, either literally (laughs) six feet under or, you know, you've just, your life is dead. (laughs) You've checked out. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. So, Talar, I have to say that one of the things that I love the most about you and is... It doesn't have to be just one winter. We still have some time. You want to give me 10? <laughs> I mean, I I could, I could, but, you know, we've been recording for a while. So can I stick to one? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> you have the biggest heart of anyone I think that I've ever met. Your personal philanthropic efforts are on a scale far greater than I've ever seen in an individual person. So if you would, please, in your own words, because I will never be as eloquent as you when talking about this, because you talk uh, talk to us a bit about your dedication to SOAR, the Society of Orphaned Armenians. Yes, I would be happy to. My philanthropy started after my dad died. He died in 2006 in Lebanon. Um, And it was a really traumatic experience. I mean, losing a parent is difficult at at any time, but it was during a war. It was unexpected. I traveled from California through Damascus to get to him in Lebanon. And I am so grateful by God's grace. I got to be with him for 12 hours before he died and um, was a really, really difficult time for me. And I wasn't ready to let go of him. I didn't want to forget him. I didn't want the world to forget him. And I, I was trying to find healthier ways of coping because at the time it was just, 
it was not a good situation for me. And so I decided, you know, my, my dad was really passionate about children. And before I found SOAR, I mean, I wanted to find Armenian children to support. And, and one of the reasons why I love all children, I don't, you know, adults, eh, not so much. They're questionable. Children, children, I love them all. But the reason that I support, you know, in this particular channel, Armenian children is there's, there's so few Armenians. And so if Armenians don't support the Armenian children, there's, you know, nobody else will. Right. And so, so it's like, I'd like to save all of them, but I can't. So I, I wanted to like focus in on who I can. And so I searched online on Google at the time, and this is probably about 10 years ago, I think, to try to find uh, charities that support Armenian children. I discovered SOAR. At the time, I think they only had like five chapters. The founder, his name is Georgia Kubian. He's a American lawyer in Philadelphia, I think second generation or third generation Armenian. And, um, you know, his day job is a white criminal defense lawyer, but he started this because he adopted one of his daughters from an orphanage in Armenia. He saw how horrible the conditions were. So he wanted to find a way to help these orphanages. And, and that was important to me because I, I love charities, but I'm very skeptical. I want my money to do what it's intended. Right. I, I, I hate waste. And um, hopefully I don't offend anybody. But like if I see some of these charitable organizations with CEOs making over half a million dollars, it just, it, it just rubs me the wrong way. So the fact that George, the founder and, and CEO of this uh, charitable organization wasn't making any money. I thought, okay, this is the real deal. He's doing it for the right reasons with heart. And the other thing is he's just as paranoid as I am about money. And he went through with me in terms of all the checks and balances in place in order to make sure wow. that the money gets to where it is. I have direct, so I support orphanages in Lebanon because that's where I'm from, where my dad died. And I have direct contacts with the people there. I know directly what their needs are. I know what the costs are and where to get them from and how they need to get it. And so it's a very different relationship than some, you know, abstract charitable organization where you're just writing a check. So that's a part of what makes me so invested in it. But but the reason that I put all my all into it, I don't know if it's because of a big heart and all the right reasons. It's it's how I grieve for the loss of my father. Yeah. Because otherwise I think I would just end up, you know, spiraling into a terrible place. And so this is this is my using my grief for good and I have a very soft spot in in my heart for children and I would if I if I see them in person I would probably bring them all home. I mean, I literally would probably bring them all home. And so this is the next best thing I can do. I I hope Hopefully I'm giving them a chance. I'm giving them um, some hope. I love that. You know, I recently had an episode where we talked about grief and um, how people grieve differently and how grief presents itself. And first of all, I think it is amazing that you recognize that this is how you work through your grief. And it's beautiful that you you are putting in so much effort to help these children. And I love 
that that's what makes you feel good. I I love that. I think it's amazing. And I think, you know, your dad's memory, it lives on. It definitely lives on. So, you know, I, I, I want you to know <laughs> that I believe very much in this organization too, through you. So, you know, your dad is living in so many people and not, and not to sound sappy about it, but the fact that sore now means something to me when I'd never, I'd never heard of it before I met you and I share it with other people. I talk about it with other people. I try to encourage other people to learn about it. You know, that's a beautiful thing to learn. I hope you really grasp the the gravity of that and just the enormity of what you've done for SOAR, for Lebanon, for the children, and for your dad. So I just want you to know that for sure. I I appreciate that very much. And uh I thank you for those kind words. <laughs> I love you so much, Soar. So, you know, every Thanksgiving you raise money for Soar through a run, and I actually participated last year. It was a lot of fun, even though it was virtual. I got up super early, ran two miles before I started cooking dinner, and I did the run while wearing a tiara in your honor. Bless your heart. I don't think anybody has ever done that for me. Winter. Oh, wait a minute. I think uh, Bob Levant did, but his was like a paper one. You had the real deal. We have matching tiaras. That's what we yes. should have worn today. We should have next time, right? Maybe we'll have another photo op for that. But can I, can I plug my book before I forget? Well, I'm not done. Oh, you're not done with me? No. I thought you are you're getting rid of me. No, I'm not getting rid of you. That's the next thing that I wanted to talk about because your current fundraising effort has really, really blown me away. The fact that you've written a children's book, which is phenomenal, by the way, and is available right now for pre-order on Amazon and directly from the publisher. It's called Ralphie's Rules for Living the Good Life. And I'll include links and, and all of this information in the show notes, so be sure to read those so you can support Talar. But Talar, please tell us more about the book and, and how that is helping Soar. You know what's funny is I, I think the story in the book is fantastic. I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but it's bit, true. Maybe. It's true. <laughs> I mean, you know what? There's facts and then there's facts. That's a fact. Read it. It's a great story. But you know what I also love is the story about the story. There's so many layers of stories upon stories. And, and you're a part of this story. Me? You are a part of this story. You know, had it not been getting on LinkedIn, meeting you, publishing network together, I never would have dreamed of publishing a children's book to raise money for the orphanages. It was this combination of events. So that was, that was like one of the layers of my inspiration for Ralphie's rules. The other layer was um, my furry client, Ralphie. People think he's 
he's my dog. He's not even my dog. I, I wrote a story. I love that though. I love that though. It took me a long time to realize that Ralphie really wasn't your dog because you call him your client. And I thought you were just being funny. <laughs> no, he's my furry client. Um, I dog walk and, um, that's how I met Ralphie last, uh, what was it? Like May or June. And so I walk Ralphie across the street at City Hall, Washington Square, downtown Salt Lake City. And when we're walking there, Ralphie is always looking for Joey, the squirrel. We've named all the squirrels that he chases. <laughs> and so it was through this. And then also reading The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Oh, amazing. Amazing book. Yes. And, you know, originally I wanted to call it The Four Agreements for Kids because it's it's the storytelling of kind of of Don Miguel Ruiz's agreements. And I even got in touch with the publisher to get copyright permission but they denied it. Of course they did. <laughs> so I changed the name. But I love the effort. Uh, well, because I thought, and, and this is my goal. I've already written the next book, which is Ralphie's Rules on the Way to School, which my son helped me come up with. I love it. And that's the other neat thing, Winter. My son has started writing his own comic books. He's written 25 chapters. You know what they're called? Oh my God. It's, it's the, um, adventures of the person. Okay. The adventures of the person. It's hilarious. <laughs> he has like the person and then the milk person and Pepsi person. I just love that he's using his imagination. I got to read this. I really, I really he's, he, So he sees me and he's so proud of me. And I, I was talking about this in, um, parenting clubhouse room the other day, you know, one of the other added benefits of what I've done with Ralphie's rules, my son is so proud of me, which means more to me than anything. And I feel like, you know, it's, this is a part of, this is going to be a part of who he is as he grows up. It's not going to end with me, you know, that this, this charitable giving will continue with him because he knows it's like a fabric of our life. Um, so that and him writing the books. It's just been, you know, it's just been giving and giving and giving in so many unexpected ways. Not to mention, you know, the, the, the message in the story in and of itself, Ralphie's rules. And, and the first one is probably my favorite, which is to be kind to yourself and to be kind to others. You know, I, I think people regularly will preach about the importance of kindness, but forget the first part that it starts with being kind to yourself. Right. That's hard. It, it can be, although I'll give you a tip. One of the things that I do to be nicer to myself, I was really cute when I was four. And so, You're so cute now, what are you talking about? No, you should see when I was four. <laughs> okay. I, and, and, and I remember being four. And so when I'm being hard on myself or I'm having negative self-talk, I literally will picture myself as that, as that four-year-old little girl. Because oh. you can't be, you can't be mean to her. Right? I love that. Yeah. So try that next time. I bet you were cute when you were four. Listen, I was killing it. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's this one particular photo of myself at, at four and I have on, I mean, it was the 80s, I have on this 
big pink dress and my hair is up and I've got like pink ribbons and I just have the biggest smile and I can tell how happy I was that day. Aww. So I'm absolutely going to do that. I'm going to like put that picture up and, and remind myself that, you know, that four-year-old deserves a lot better than I'm doing for her right now. Thank you, Talar. That's like, I don't know, man. I think we need to put that like on a meme or something. Yeah. Yeah. You could put up the picture <laughs> with the note that says, be nice to her. Yep. Absolutely. Right. But yeah, that's one of the things that I loved about the book is that it's not just for kids. These are lessons for every human, but you did you did it in a way that is digestible and easy for kids to understand and to implement. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah. Or even... I mean, even grown-ups who still have the mental <laughs> uh, bandwidth of children, you know? There, there are a lot of them out there. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But I also wanted to say um, and plug that you're doing a speaking tour for children and you're zooming into classrooms to read the story to students. And I love that. And so I hope that people who are listening will try to get in contact with you and take you up on that. Yeah, I think it'll be really fun. I wish I could do it in person because I'm going to take Ralphie with me, you know, the real Ralphie. Uh, but then at yeah. least, even even if I can't do it in person, I feel like the silver lining is it's accessible to anybody who right. has internet, basically. So if you're out there, whether you are homeschooling parent and you want to have me do a virtual reading with Ralphie, I would be happy to do that for you and donate a book to you as well. I got paw prints. I got for autographs oh, from Ralphie. So cute. so cute. I'll have to send you one. Or if you're a grade school teacher, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. I'm sure you have international listeners. I do. I would be happy to offer a virtual reading and, and share the story with the littles in your life. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Talar Herculean Corsi. And I think my LinkedIn link is Talar ESQ. Well, I'll have all of that included in our show notes so you'll be easy to find for anyone who listens. Not the creepers. Can we add like in the fine print? <laughs> um, can we redirect creepers somewhere else? Because I'll try. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for being with me today. This has been really, really fun. My goodness, I feel like I have learned... A lot about you today. <laughs> Do you still like me? I mean, that's the important question. <laughs> I, I adore you even more. Okay. Okay. Even good. More. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been a fun conversation. We'll have to continue sometime. We sure will. Thank you for listening to the Mediate Now. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Music and audio editing provided by Encompass Podcast Studio. Take our advice. You will improve your entire life.